Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Good to have you with us for episode 47 of this podcast and a special hello to you if you're a new listener because I think that we may have a few listeners listening to this particular part of The Blind Side, this series over the next few weeks, who don't normally listen. People interested in politics in New Zealand without a disability, people with a disability in New Zealand who are not blind, who want to hear what some of the spokespeople have to say ahead of our election. So I'm delighted to be able to do this series. The New Zealand general election is coming up on the 23rd of September and between now and then we have sent an invitation to all of the major parties' disability spokespeople to appear on the blind side and talk with us at some length about disability policies that don't really get an airing in the mainstream media, certainly not from a disability perspective. I was going to start with that quote, be the change you wish to see in the world. It was Gandhi, I was told, who said that be the change you wish to see in the world. But I've been caught so many times of late with quotes that I'm absolutely certain can be attributed to a certain person, only to find that somebody never actually said that. There's a whole bunch of quotes attributed to Churchill that he never said. So sure enough, I googled be the change you wish to see in the world or you want to see in the world. And it turns out there's no documentary evidence that Gandhi ever said that. So I don't know who said it. But it is one of the things that's motivating me to put this series of podcasts together. I remain distressed, a little disheartened, I suppose, that in New Zealand we have nobody with a significant disability in the mainstream media. When you hear these political panels on the radio or see them on the TV, how often do you see somebody with a disability putting that point of view across? And of course, there's more to us than our disability, but I think it does offer a unique perspective that is too often missing from the mainstream media, and certainly disability issues don't get a really decent thorough airing. We hope to address that in this 2017 election campaign on the blind side. A couple of notes about the interview with Mojo Mathers, the Greens spokesperson who we'll be talking with today. The first is a technical one. I apologise that there is a little bit of skippage in this interview. I believe we've tracked down the reason for that and that we've nipped it in the bud for future interviews. So I apologize that you will hear a little bit of skipping from time to time. I don't think it detracts from the interesting things that Mojo has to say. And the second point of note is that you'll note towards the end of the interview that Mojo talks about what a good Minister for Social Development, Materia Ture, the Greens female co-leader, would make. Obviously, I went to Parliament and recorded this interview before Materia Ture announced her decision not to seek a cabinet position after the election in light of recent controversial developments surrounding her benefit activity in the 1990s. Before we proceed to our interview with Mojo, a Mosin consulting note, we're getting a lot of inquiries about whether there is going to be an iOS 11 without the iBook. Since we were founded in 2013, we've done a book every year in the iOS without the i series, which looks not just at what's new from an accessibility perspective with VoiceOver, the screen reader built into iOS, the operating system that powers the iPhone and the iPad, but also looking at many of the mainstream features that are offered, but how you use them from a VoiceOver user's perspective. And we've always made these books available just before iOS has hit the official release ring so that somebody can have that book in their hands and be guided through the install and then learn about what's new and how to use all the new features. So yes, there is an iOS 11 without the eye. 
As I record this podcast, it's already hit 36,000 words, so it'll be the largest iOS without the iBook that we have done to date. There's an awful lot packed into iOS 11, and interestingly, a lot of it's kind of hidden. Uh, A lot of it's not as obvious as you might think. So there's a lot to say, and our accessibility chapter on new voiceover features is also the largest it's ever been. There's a lot that has been done with accessibility in iOS 11. Now, the ordering procedure for iOS 11 without the eye is a little different this year from previous years because as email providers have sought to cut down on spam, we've found that when people have pre-ordered and then we have delivered those pre-orders on the day or two days before iOS is released, Some providers like to put our lovely book in the spam folder, and some people miss it when they really want it. So we're not going to be offering pre-orders. We will release the book slightly earlier than we have in previous years, and you'll be able to go to the website, order it, and download it instantly. So you have no worries about getting the book in time for when you really need it when iOS 11 drops. We'll have more to say about iOS 11 without the I as we get closer to September which is the month in which we expect a release officially of that operating system. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. Well, the 23rd of September election is not too far away. And what better way to start our look at disability issues than to talk to the only MP with a significant disability at the moment in New Zealand. Mojo Mathers was elected to the House in 2011. And so she's now completing two terms as a Green MP. She has, among other responsibilities, disability issues. So thank you for having me here, Mojo. It's great to get to meet you in person at last. Thank you, Jonathan. Lovely to meet you too. You've got a lot of weight on your shoulders, it seems to me. It must be an enormous source of pressure to have people give you all of this responsibility for the wide range of disability issues. It's almost like you are the single go-to person for disability issues in Parliament. I imagine that is an enormous responsibility. Yes, it is, and I do feel the weight of that responsibility. However, one of the things that has been really great about my election to Parliament is that all of the parties seem to be taking disability issues more seriously, um, at least, and um, the disability spokespeople for all of the parties are, you know, starting to develop uh, some good responses for disability issues. So I think me being in Parliament has helped shame some of the culture and attitudes around disability issues. Having said that, I think there's still a long way to go. (laughs) You look at issues such as whānau order for the Māori Party and Mm. indeed it would be considered just inappropriate, culturally inappropriate, say, for a man to be Minister of Women's Affairs and on and on it goes. Why do you think it is that in 2017, particularly under our proportional system, you are still the only person in Parliament who has a recognised significant disability. No other party has anybody in a winnable position on their party list with a significant disability. I think it's a reflection of the immense structural barriers to political participation 
for disabled people in New Zealand. I mean, the reality is, is that there are massive barriers every step of the way. And um, so <laughs> you have to be able to um, engage with your party um, every party is not necessarily particularly committed to accessibility and then you have to um, there need to be a recognition of the value of the experiences that disabled people have to the political process and I think we're still a long way from that that basically it considers sufficient to go and consult with disabled people and advocate on their behalf rather than giving disabled people a direct voice in the process themselves. And indeed in the case of the Green Party, you've received a a little bit of a demotion. I mean, you're down three places from your 2014 ranking. That's a little bit of a slap in the face for disabled people, isn't it? To see you go down from number eight to number 11. Oh, I was only number eight on a draft list. Um, so my position last election was number nine, actually. So, okay. but yes, yeah, so I have moved down slightly. Um, but I think it's more of a reflection of um, the uh, desire to rejuvenate our list and there's no doubt, I mean the other MPs who have also been moved down into even more precarious positions, so I don't take it personally. Alright, well let's take a look at some of the issues that disabled people are thinking about. One of the things that is really occupying my attention is the fact that it's now been 25 years since we had a really serious debate about whether disability support services belong with health or belong with social policy. And when I talk to a lot of non-disabled people in the disability sector, there's a lot of talk about health and not a lot of talk about what it means to be a disabled person in New Zealand and some of the social challenges that we face. Do you think we've got that balance right? And if we haven't, how do we make sure that those health issues continue to be addressed but that we focus better on some of these social policy and human rights and and employment kind of issues. Okay, so in terms of the work that I've been doing personally, it has been very much more focused on things like social participation and accessibility, uh, disability rights perspective. But there is a whole other area around access to health support and the Green Party position is that it shouldn't matter whether you've been disabled from birth, disabled from an accident or from an illness, you should be able to get um, the right support to participate in society and the right health support that you need as well. Um, so, and uh, I'm very focused personally on things like accessibility of society and ensuring that everyone, regardless of their disability, can participate in society to the fullest extent possible. Because it's only when we're seeing disabled people in all sorts of jobs and having their voice heard in a whole range of positions in society will we start to actually take on board um, the further changes that need to happen. 
That's not happening at the moment, though, is it, in terms of your or the Green Party's view that irrespective of how you acquired your disability, you should be treated equally because the Woodhouse Commission, which introduced our accident compensation system, made it very clear that there should be, over time, a move to the kind of world you are talking about where, irrespective of how you became disabled, you were treated the same way. But there is a huge disparity that still exists between uh, what people on ACC are entitled to versus what somebody who might be congenitally disabled is entitled to. I absolutely agree there is a huge disparity and that does need to be um, addressed. But it would take a massive structural change to the health system and and how to do them, fund it differently. Um, one uh, proposal that, has, that I've been looking at closely is the disability insurance um, type scheme. Um, but we don't formally have a policy on that at the moment, but it's something that I'm interested in learning more about. Mm. You mean similar to what's um, happened in Australia with Julia Gillard's scheme that she introduced? Is that the kind of thing that you are looking at? Yes, I'm sort of interested in that. It promised a lot when it was initiated, but then it seemed to be involved back. But I haven't, I haven't had the latest update on it yet. That would be a very significant social policy change. Yes. It, it seems to me that over time we have had disability policy evolving somewhat by accident. So, you know, as a blind person, the services that I receive date back to the church setting up a very philanthropic blindness organisation back in the 1890s. Mm. Um, other disability groups weren't so lucky and so the government has stepped in more for them whereas a lot of other blindness services are funded by charitable giving that, that we don't seem to have any consistency as a country about what we think we as a society ought to be funding from the public purse it all seems to have evolved accidentally yes and I know that the Access Alliance, which is um, being led by the Blind Foundation, which is calling for mandatory enforceable accessibility legislation, um, is an initiative that I um, and the Green Party fully support because we see that as setting some of the uh, more structural foundation for equal participation so that you don't need as much individual support in order to do things. So for example, if, if you can guarantee accessibility to workplaces, then there will be an improved chance of um, ability to be of the workforce for many disabled people, and that will improve incomes and reduce reliance on income support, etc. So um, the, uh, so I see a massive advantage, both from a human rights perspective, but also from a uh, you know, financial perspective, um, the massive advantages to society of having uh, a fully assist a commitment to accessibility across a whole range of areas, whether that's accessibility to buildings, to public transport, to services, to education, 
to information and all of these things make a much real difference that we can have some overarching legislation that will bring in mandatory enforceable accessibility standards right across all these different areas and I think we could transform society and participation for disabled people. That's quite a bold vision, isn't it? Do you have a view about how long that would take? Presumably there would have to be quite a generous grace period for uh, everybody in society to modify their practices. Yes, so I think the kind of time frame that has been talked about is having this um, uh, an accessible auto over about 2030 or something like that. So you would be, but you would expect when you bring in the legislation that it would apply immediately to any new benches or new buildings or stuff like that and the retrospective part of it, of, of ramping up, um, would, would be based in over time. And that um, it's based on legislation overseas in Montreal and uh, there, there was a lot of uh, consultation, consult, you know, talking to um, different businesses and so on about what the impacts of the legislation would be and getting buy-in for them so that they could see the benefits to them of having more accessible services and so on. And, and in that way, helping get their buy-in for the legislation that was coming as much as possible. How do you think we measure up at the moment? How do we compare with countries that we generally like to compare ourselves with, such as the United States and Britain and Australia, in terms of how accessible and inclusive a society we are? Well, I mean, the um, Australians have had the Disability Act, and which is sort of what we're trying to achieve with um, take a step further with this proposed disability legislation. And, and for some areas, this has made quite transformational changes. So one very obvious one is um, captaining of broadcast television. So New Zealand lags far behind Australia, the UK, um, Europe, um, and uh, the United States in captaining because we, we fund it from the public purse here in New Zealand, whereas overseas they require the broadcaster to provide accessible broadcasting. And the model that I'm particularly interested in is the, what's being used in the UK, where it's not just about captioning, but it's about audio description and sign language content. So basically the legislation provides for quotas increasing over time that need to be met for captioning, for audio description, for sign language content. And that is what I would really, really love to see here. Mm. Last year, or maybe maybe the year before now, um, you may remember that some of the telcos and the media outlets here uh, sought to stop people from circumventing geo-blocking technology because they felt that that was intruding into their rights within New Zealand. And through that process, I contacted the Human Rights Commission and I said to them, as a blind person, I unashamedly circumvent geo-blocking and I don't think that it's any different from 
parallel importing a DVD, for example, because when I can access the BBC iPlayer from New Zealand, I get content that is audio described and it, it's shown in New Zealand not audio described. And mm. so I feel quite justified uh, in circumventing those geoblocking techniques if the media outlets in this country refuse to do the right thing. And I'm not really sure why. If we consider that it's just a cost of doing business to make sure that all buildings are wheelchair accessible, why do we not just consider it a cost of doing business for media outlets to make all of their content fully accessible? I totally agree. I like it. I am very aware that in the deaf community, uh, many deaf people also do exactly that, which is circumnavigate geo-blocking in order to download stuff with caption because there's so much that is um, part of popular culture in New Zealand, you know, watching Game of Thrones and so on. And it's so frustrating to not be able to follow that as it is happening. And um, so, yes, yeah, circumnavigating gear blocking is absolutely part of the course. And it's seen as a right issue um, because it is available overseas. It's just that they won't do it here in New Zealand. And they won't do it here in New Zealand because they're not required to. And also, from my conversations with um, some of the broadcasters, basically, um, is that because there's this part of public money funding for captioning, they feel they have the right to access it, so refuse to do the captioning themselves because they're saying their competitors are getting funded for captioning, so they won't do it, even though they can afford it. And it's just, it's just like, Actually, the only way to get them to step up and take responsibility is to take that pot of money away from them and just say, you are going to be required to do it. Um, because it actually, strangely enough, has been a disincentive to do any voluntary captioning. So does the fact that this has allowed it to go on for so long, where essentially mere outlets just say, it's too difficult for us to do this, we live in hard times, we can't afford it. They've been getting away with this argument for years. Does that point to a fundamental failure of our present human rights legislation, that the Commission hasn't been able to come in and say to them, look, if you, if you are not providing fully accessible content, you are acting illegally? It does. Um, the human rights um, legislation, it does not provide the right processes or tools for ensuring that um, at the corporate business level that their services are accessible. And um, part of it is that the mediation process is so long-winded, so complex has to be done to an individual complaint is that it um, lots of people will pull out or find it doesn't work for them. So that's why we need something that is more overarching with accessibility legislation um, because actually the human rights um, process isn't working. So you would be in favour of perhaps separating disability from the present Human Rights Act and see it included in a new piece of legislation, is that correct? Well, at this stage, the co co I would need to understand more of what that would involve, but at this stage, I think a lot of the um, 
human rights uh, disability complaint. Um, my understanding is about half of them actually relate to access to education. So that, moving on to another policy area, is that the Green Party is totally committed to inclusive addition, ensuring that every child has access to the support they need to reach their potential. And one, it's something that it, I personally um, very, um, feel very strongly about because I had access to a great public, public education, both um, in England growing up, but also here in New Zealand in the high school years. And so one example is that when I was here in New Zealand for four years in high school, um, while I was mainstreamed, there was a deaf unit and the teacher in the deaf unit was a speech therapist. So I had an hour of speech therapy every week there which over four years made a huge difference to my speech. Nowadays, parents come up to me and their child has dyspraxia or, you know, um, autism and needs speech therapy and they cannot access more than maybe one or two sessions a year. And I was thinking, I had it every week for four years. And that is, it's just not okay that they're being made to jump all these hoops to get just a tiny bit of support. And so if we want every side to reach their potential, we have to fund inclusive education properly. You raise a question that really reminds me that we have this big, massive bucket of policy that we call disability, but there are so many pockets within that policy framework. For example, if we're talking inclusive education for somebody in a wheelchair that may involve one-off physical modifications to the built environment but for a deaf person or a blind kid who needs braille instruction that requires significant ongoing resourcing because of course a blind child will be placed in front of a teacher who in blindness terms is illiterate they don't know braille so it's complicated, isn't it, that I, I often think that this big thing that we call disability is often for the convenience of policymakers, but actually there are, there are some very complex needs that each individual disability group has that need to be considered separately. Yeah, absolutely, which is why, you know, um, I think the foundation uh, the, if you like, the philosophical foundation is taking a rights-based approach that uh, every disabled person or child, regardless of the nature of their disability, has the right to participate fully in society on an equal basis to everyone else. And if you take that as the foundation principle, then you can look at each group, as it were, of a particular type of need and so what will help ensure that this group of people um, can access and participate in society um, to the fullest extent possible on an equal basis to everyone else. And so it will be different for each group, but the overarching principle is that we uh, have the right to 
to equal participation and equal ability to contribute as well because it's not just about us accessing and getting things, it's about us participating and contributing back to society. It's about us as citizens being seen as people of value, of people who are uh, who contribute to society as well. And that's what we want. We want our skills and our abilities to be recognised. And it's not always just focusing on what we can't do, but actually recognise what we can do. And that actually sometimes we will have developed skills that other people don't have. So you've talked about Braille. I mean, I've tried to even recognise the difference between each number of dots. I can barely make my fingers count the dots, let alone the positioning. I am totally illiterate when it comes to Braille. Um, and so that's the skill that people have learned how to read Braille have. Likewise for me, I can lip read a very wide range of people now. That's the skill that I have that so many people don't have. And so we do need to um, turn things around and they hurt us a bit. And so sometimes people like to say, we aren't disabled, we're differently abled. And that we do have extraordinary skills and talent that society it just has to recognise and learn how to tap into. Do you think special schools have any, any place at all or have they had the day and that mainstreaming is the only appropriate solution there? I do think they have their place, um, uh, mainly as centres of excellence that they can provide support and advice for how to mainstreaming in schools. I did work, go to a special school for the deaf in England for a number of years and I've also been mainstreamed. They both have their advantages and their disadvantages and that needs to be recognised. Um, so, um, our position is that our preference is for mainstreaming and definitely for the core principle is that every child has the right to at their local school. That they have the right to do that and that the school needs to uh, provide an accessible, inclusive education environment. So that's going to, for some schools, require a transformation or change in their culture and the way that they do things. Um, but having said that, um, I do know that the, like Salisbury School, for example, that that has worked very, very well for some of the people uh, didn't to attend that school. And so, but what I would like to see is that the ability for the, the teaching method and the knowledge that they have of working with these children uh, be, have better connections out to other schools as well. Because Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in the UK, even now, there are some pretty well-resourced, prestigious schools for blind kids as well. I mean, they really are very well-resourced. They are amazing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we seem to have moved away from that model here. My experience may be quite similar to yours in that I was... I went to a special school for the early part of my education, and I feel that that gave me 
a lot of grounding in blindness skills, not just reading and writing in Braille, but social things, you know, learning what's socially acceptable and what isn't, which <laughs> when, when you can't see is a factor. Yeah. Um, and then moving on to a mainstream intermediate and high school, but that's not a model we tend to follow very much now, I don't think. Yeah, I agree. And I, I yeah. I'm aware of the ideological framework that says we should make mainstream work for absolutely everyone. But there are, when you're with a group of your peers, with a recognition of uh, the challenges that you all uh, face together in common and look at the strategies for dealing with that, it can set you up very well. I would, I am, having said that, I'm really glad that I didn't spend any longer in the school for this because um, it can become introspective and so I'm really grateful to have had the experience of both um, being in a special school and being mainstream because I think that has been the ideal combination for me. There are a couple of things there. One is that it's important I think to ensure that if disabled people are in their mainstream school and enjoying going home every night to mum and dad, which is important, that they do have exposure to adult mentors who have the same disability as them. And the other part is, is if we cut off the means of people with disabilities or, or of the same disability getting together at formative stages of their lives, it does potentially hinder their ability to organise and advocate and form collective advocacy organisations. That's a very good point. Um, I definitely know that for the deaf community, um, for the young people with some hearing loss, maybe not necessarily relying on sign language for communication, but they have um, moderate to severe hearing loss is that they often feel like they're the only one in the school and they do feel very isolated. And so especially as they come up into their teenage years, that sense of isolation can be quite profound. And so they are um, having the opportunity to go away and stay deaf, deaf youth camps or other opportunities to network and socialise with other deaf youth from around the country is, has been uh, incredibly empowering for these young people. And I think we, you know, especially as we have moved so strongly to mainstreaming, that we still need to provide these opportunities for disabled youth um, to get together and share their experiences and form networks, um, especially during the high school years. It seems that advocacy on the part of disabled people in New Zealand is in a little bit of trouble and I don't fully understand why that is. Um, I hear rumblings that organisations like DPA are not as strong as they were and they're finding it hard to get people to participate. And then, you know, you talked about the accessibility legislation concept and how that was being led by the Blind Foundation. It is important, I think, to separate what is being suggested from who is suggesting it, because if it's a good idea, it's a good idea. But I wonder if you, like me, have a philosophical disquiet about a provider organisation like the Blind Foundation that has no mandate 
to speak on behalf of its clients. The only mandate it has is to provide services to those clients. Should those organizations, those providers, be leading the charge on advocacy issues that affect their clients? Well, I would just say that the Access Alliance is much more than the Blind Foundation and they are working with disability-led organisations as well. So I think my, my perspective from the work that I've done with them is that the heart is in the right place and that they are working with disabled people uh, very much and what they want. So I don't get too much of a sense that um, obviously there will be people with different viewpoints that they've taken it over. Um, but in terms of um, the strength of organised disability-led organisation, I think one of the biggest challenges for disability-led organisation is that actually a lot of the people involved will have been so marginalised by society that it's actually quite, um, you know, it, it, it can be difficult to acquire the skills, the time, the resources needed to self-advocate. So it's a kind of a crack 22 situation. To improve the outcomes for disabled people, we need to be able to self-advocate. But in order to self-advocate, we need the barrier to participation removed and, and to acquire the skills for self-advocacy. So, um, and so one of the things that I have done, recognising that actually a lot of disabled people just don't have that skill, is that I run workshops on political participation, on how to get your voice heard in the parliamentary system and things like how to lobby your member of parliament, how to do a petition um, you know, on a particular issue, how to deal with the media. Um, so I run workshops on that because then I'm transferring my insight to the system as a disabled person and passing that on to the wider disability community so that they can feel strengthened and empowered to participate and have their voice heard. And I see that as being very fundamental to progressing disability rights in New Zealand. Yes, I imagine there are specific provisions that you can point to that have occurred where Parliament is now a more disabled-friendly place because of your presence in it. Absolutely. So after my election, uh, because of the public outcry around the support services that I needed, um, there was an inquiry into the accessibility of Parliament that was led by the former Minister for Disability, Ruth Dyson, and they, they, um, they a whole heap of recommendations and parliamentary, the clerk um, uh, office and parliamentary um, have really responded very positively to that and made a lot of constructive changes. It's an ongoing process, and, but um, I definitely think that Parliament is more accessible than it was. In terms of how we make our society more equitable, I suppose there's been a view since all of the reforms of 1984 and beyond that either you are on welfare or you are not, and that we, we, we have abandoned this concept of those things that everybody used to be entitled to. 
Do you think that there is an argument that says, look, there are costs of disability that don't go away even if you have a good job and that if those costs are not compensated for, then your discretionary income is essentially being depleted for the privilege of having a disability? Should there be a non-income tested payment available to all people with disabilities in this country, do you think? I would be very much in favour of that. And one of the things that I've been looking into of recent is the disability allowance, um, because that I keep hearing of more and more people who are losing access to the disability allowance and being questioned why do they really need this allowance. And um, from my calculations, since National came into government, the disability allowance is now lost equivalent of about $65 million a year. If you allow for population increase, if you allow for inflation and so on. So basically, um, what that meant is that more and more people are missing out who would have got it before. So that is something that needs to be addressed. But even more importantly, it's, I mean, most people who are on benefit um, or receiving uh, welfare support of some kind, a large proportion of these have a disability or are sick or are mentally um, unwell and so they are some of our most vulnerable people and they are disabled people and deaf people are completely overrepresented in the poverty statistics. So like when you look at, for example, at the percentage of people who are unable to keep their homes warm, um, the proportion is far higher for disabled people. Partly because we've got less income, partly because we're in substandard rental housing, um, because we're in lower incomes, so there may be cold, mouldy, damp, and uninsulated homes. And so this was last week, um, the Green Party announced our commitment to just simply saying we'll increase all the benefits by 20% so that you can have enough to live on. And we will reduce the abatement rate so that when you work for a few hours a week or a few uh, part-time work that you can keep more of that in order, which is very important for disabled people because a lot of us only do work part-time or have a few hours of work a week and so that income may be all that we'll ever get because we might never get full-time work so it's being able to keep more of the top-up income that um, we earn is incredibly important. We're committed to increasing base benefit rate, we are committed to reducing the abatement rate and also changing the culture of women, uh, removing the extensions and endlessly having to prove that you're in fact still disabled and uh, being allowed to use your own doctor to say that you are disabled instead of being sent to a different health assessment. Um, all of these different things we are committed to changing that because at the end of the day what is really really important is that everyone has enough to live on to be warm, to be dry, to be fed. Do you have a feel at this point for what an appropriate level of compensation would be in monetary terms, in dollar terms, for having a disability that was not income tested at all? I wouldn't uh, at all. I mean, I think my first step would be to um, make the disability allowance much more available and, and um, 
you know, um, really raise the caps and stuff. So moving towards universality rather than immediately bringing in universal uh, um, benefit. So mm. you just need to move to that at the moment. But yeah, it's definitely something I'm in very much in for. But in terms of, um, I don't think you can treat all disability expenses as equal. I mean, the reality is that for people who have particular combinations of health and disability needs, um, the, the disability-related expenses can be very, very high, whereas for other people it's actually quite minimal. So it really, really is a very individual thing relating to disability. Um, so I don't think you could just say it would be a flat rate. It would have to take into account what you actually need. I suppose one of the other frustrations that I most frequently hear is the value judgments that a lot of policymakers make about certain types of equipment. For example, as a blind person, a smartphone is a nice thing to have, like it is for anybody, but it can also allow me to do a whole bunch of things independently that I simply couldn't do without sighted help. And so then we get on to social policy makers who say, well, it's not appropriate to give expensive cell phones to blind people because otherwise everybody will want them. I wonder how we address that, how we come up with something that makes sure that people aren't, shall we say, taking advantage of their disability, but that does acknowledge that certain types of mainstream equipment may actually have some very impactful disability-related implications. Yes, and there are all sorts of um, equipment like that. For example, for deaf people, they want access to visual um, smoke fire alarm um, in the home. Um, but if, at the moment, if the parents are hearing, but they might have a child under a certain age who is deaf, they're not eligible for visual fire alarm. Um, to be provided and so there's lots of debates like that around the criteria for eligibility and what you can access. My perception is that it becomes tighter and tighter to access the support. The question more and more, do you really need it? Is this essential? Is this, you know, and the, like the attitude is, is very much one of questioning and challenging your right to access something and um, rather than just being more generous and more, un more understanding and recognition that actually these things make a big difference to our lives. Often people just don't realise how small things on a day-to-day -day basis can add up to being really, really challenging or exhausting to deal with. Um, yeah. And a lot of these things come down to what you referred to before, which is increasing the participation of disabled people in society. And I don't know whether you have numbers on this, but anecdotally it seems to me that the number of disabled people working in the public service has probably booked over the last 20 years. We only have you in Parliament. I don't know of anybody with a significant disability in the media, which in my view is a very significant potential agent of change. We are very invisible in this country still, aren't we? Yes. Yes, and I really, really would like to see that change. I would love to see 
disabled people and leadership positions right across society. And at the moment it seems to be that disabled people only seem to pop up when they're, when they're talking about disability issues. And it frustrates me because we are so much more than our disabilities and we have other interests and we should be able to, and uh, you know, like I'm um, animal welfare spokesperson mm. and one of the things that I really decided quite early to do was to actually put a lot of energy into my animal welfare work. And part of that because I'm really, really passionate about animal welfare. But the other part of that was that I wanted to show my skills as a politician and my campaigning skills on an issue that wasn't disability. Yes. Because actually when you talk to disabled people, that's what they want. They're, they're, they want to have their skills and their abilities and their expertise in different areas recognised and validated. And it isn't going to just be about our disabilities, it's going to be about the things that we have studied and learnt and acquired, gone to such effort to acquire skills in. It might be filmmaking, it might be art, uh, it might be conservation, it might be animal welfare, but whatever it is, we should have the right to be leaders in these fields too, if we require the skills. Um, but the, 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 that's where, um, you know, I think we still need to break out of our boxes. On the podcast a few months ago, I spoke with David Blunkett, who I'm sure you'll you'll be familiar with, who was the Home Secretary in the UK, and he's totally blind. And of course, they don't have a proportional representation somewhere, so he was a constituency MP, and I guess he made the judgment that he would just do his thing, and by virtue of being seen to be an effective politician, hopefully change attitudes that way, Um, Obviously, under our MMP system, you've sort of inherited responsibility for disability. Do do you feel you've been able to avoid being pigeonholed? Have you been able to get on with your uh, conservation work and animal rights work, which you're considerably qualified to? You know, you've got a a university background in that area. Um, Yes and no. (laughs) So let me explain. I mean, the reality is I still face two barriers to um, speaking out on issues as a member of parliament because of my deafness every day. Okay, so for example, I can't watch, uh, uh, I'm not able usually at six o'clock to sit down and watch the one o'clock news programme, but no on-demand television is captioned. So no We, we have the same with audio description as well, it's, it's not on-demand either. Yes, and so what that means is that I can't follow a lot of the political debate, even now. So I rely, I can't listen to the radio. And so all these, you know, the morning report, checkpoint. So I go to the morning media call and the other MPs are bidding for press release or wanting to make comments because they've just heard the morning report and they know that this is the topical issue that come up. Well, I won't have had to, I have to wait until there's an online article goes up that summarises what we said in the programme if one goes up to know what we talked about. So, um, so I, there are significant barriers, and so that really confirms my ability to be a voice, and I have to keep finding ways of getting around that, and which is kind of forced me back into 
advocating for accessibility and captioning and all these other things because these barriers really do limit my ability to be a voice on other issues that I care really very much about. So I'm having to fight on both fronts all the time. And it is exhausting. And also, I will say this, I do sometimes feel it's a strange position to be, to be the only person in Parliament who constantly faced all these barriers to, to reaching my potential as a Member of Parliament, to being an effective advocate. And, you know, I don't have anyone to share that experience with. And, you know, so like across the political parties, Maori MPs can talk together about um, issues in common, women MPs can talk together about issues in common, but there isn't a, a collective group of us in Parliament that can talk about disability and access issues. In terms of improving participation, I'm sure you will have seen the article in the New Zealand Herald a few weeks back where a couple of people raised concerns about deaf people not being put in senior management roles in their own organisations. I know for certain that in the Blind Foundation, the number of blind people in senior management roles in that organisation has declined significantly in the last 20 years. I wonder whether you think it might be time for some sort of sanctions that basically says if these organisations, and let's face it, a lot of them don't appoint articulate, capable, disabled people into these roles because they don't want troublemakers there. And I wonder whether it might be time where uh, government agencies say, look, unless you can demonstrate a significant number of people from your constituency in really influential roles, then we will either sanction the funding or give priority to organisations that do walk the talk. That's a difficult one. Um, My position has been that the biggest issue here is the desire of deaf and disabled people to have meaningful employment to have career pathways and I see the government itself through the public sector should be stepping up to um, ensure that there is uh, equal access to the public service and employment in the public service because that is the way of acquiring the skills that is needed and, and to have disabled people in leadership positions through all areas of public life. Um, so rather than honing in on the disability organisation, um, I think what has happened is that, a bit like the process of colonisation, is that some disabled people themselves sometimes don't have enough confidence in the skills of other disabled people. So I don't, it's an internal attitude, is that actually some of the biggest prejudice comes from other disabled people because they know how hard they find it so they can't understand uh, how hard that somebody can actually get around these goals and barriers and so that I think there is internalised undervaluing of their own skills and abilities and each other's skills and abilities because society undervalues them 
I think there is a be internalized a lot of that. I have been internalized it. Um, so like before I start, got politically active, I never identified as deaf. If I, I tried to pass as hearing all the time, if someone said, I, if I couldn't follow something, I would just say, oh, excuse me, I'm just a little bit hard of hearing, could you repeat that? And because I didn't want to use the label deaf to myself. And it, but actually, it was only until I actually said, okay, I'm deaf, it's okay to be deaf, it's okay to ask for the support I need, it's okay. And that I could actually move on and achieve more. But so I understand that process of undervaluing yourself, of wanting to pass as normal, normal with the um, sort of quotation marks, um, of, 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 of not seeing how other people can remove it uh, because you find it so hard to come barriers or not being able to so you can't see how somebody else could do it. But would you not concede that the only way to make some progress is to have a pretty aggressive affirmative action policy in some of these agencies where what has happened is that often it is able-bodied uh, people who are deciding not to put disabled people in some of these roles. And I mean, if if these agencies can't do it, how can they expect the rest of society to step up? I think, I think, um, I do, I, I personally do very much believe in affirmative action. But it, if the organisation's a little bit different, and if the, I mean, um, for the deaf community, because part of the big challenge for a lot of the deaf community is communication, is language skills, is, um, you know, ability to... Um, so that means it's very easy for someone with hearing privilege to have a lot of control over and, and take over the discourse. And um, it... it, it, it there is an intense debate going on within the deaf community about that very issue you've identified. There is a very a deep hunger and desire for deaf-led leadership. And that is happening, but maybe outside some of the, the biggest organisations and some of the newer organisations that are starting up. Just a couple of closing questions. Uh, after the election, if there is a Labour-led government in which the Greens are participating, I would imagine that you would be in a very good position because it would be absolutely unconscionable, wouldn't it, for anybody other than you, as a person with a disability, to be Minister for Disability Issues in that coalition? That's an interesting question. Um, I don't know at this short answer. The reality is that, you know, with the number of ministers in a Labour-led Green um, coalition government that the Green Party gets would be decided very much by ICA with the party vote. And so that might actually be just four or five ministers. Um, so it may not necessarily be that the priority would be a minister with disability. Um, but having said that, um, 
I have worked very closely with the Labour Party spokesperson in disability issues, Proto Williams. She is an amazing woman and I would imagine that close relationship would definitely continue and be a kind of working relationship regardless of who actually has the ministerial And then finally, can you just talk to me a bit about how you think the world will be a better place or New Zealand will be a better country for disabled people if the Greens have an influence in the next government? What are some of the priorities um, for disability issues or perhaps some of your other policies that you believe have have a particular um, impact on disability that we may not have covered? Well, I think um, uh, our co-leader, Materia Turio, if she were to be Minister for Social Development, that that would be absolutely transformational of the social welfare system, which would have a significant impact in, for disabled people. Um, but also, both Labour and the Greens have committed to accessibility legislation. So, um, if, if, if we had a Labour Green coalition, I'm absolutely confident that that would be progress. So, both of these changes, I think would make a real difference in terms of action on the ground and um, practical changes that would happen. I mean, in terms of longer-term cultural difference um, um, around attitude towards disabled people, that is something that has to come from the whole of society. I think there has been a shift in attitude of recent, but I think we need a lot more work. And I think networking, empowering, getting our voices heard in the political process on an ongoing basis is what's needed. How will you encourage other people with disabilities to become involved in the political process? Maybe join you so that there is, a, I guess, a disability caucus in Parliament in the same way that you, you talk <laughs> well, about a Maori caucus now. Well, I mean, Every three years um, we have Youth Parliament and I'm always um, very committed to um, having a youth MP with a disability to um, be in Parliament. So both of the two young people that I've had have been amazing people. And so last year we had Katrina who was um, the first youth member of Parliament with a learning disability and she did amazing and she really transformed people's eyes as to what was possible. I mean, it was quite, I didn't know whether to be proud or sad at the number of people who quietly approached me and said, I didn't know that someone with a learning disability could do this. And, you know, and it was just like, this is why we need to have that visible present because you actually make people go, oh, oh, someone with a learning disability, someone who's deaf can actually do these things. Um, And we need to have much more of that. You can, of course, find out more about what the Greens are offering in this election by going to their website. And Mojo Mathers tells me that her approach is to try and incorporate disability issues where they're appropriate into all of the Greens' policies. So where there's a disability angle, where there's an accessibility angle, you'll find it in the regular policies as opposed to having a single document called a disability issues policy. We'll continue our series on the New Zealand election next week. Do spread the word. Do let people know in New Zealand, especially in the disability sector, that we are running this series. We certainly appreciate you downloading the podcast and spreading the word. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. 
on the web at mosin.org.